Thanks for tuning in to Manage the Moment, Conversations in Performance Psychology. I'm Dr. Sari Shepard. For me, I think with that injury, and I think with the, the other injury, which I'll talk about in a second, um, it was all about forward motion. And I think that's another thing that sometimes I do to a fault. <laughs> I think the forward motion for me is so important. Not getting too weighed down by things that you can't control, things that, that have already happened. Right about now, both in world history and in our own lives, we know what it's like to be sidelined, out of the action, and for that to be the case due to uncontrollable factors, namely the COVID-19 pandemic. We are all navigating the situation as best we can with the tools that we have. Shannon Miller knows what it's like to face uncontrollable factors that sideline even the greatest of champions. A seven-time Olympic medalist, she is a member of eight Halls of Fame, and she is the only female athlete to have ever been inducted to the Olympic Hall of Fame twice. Her tally of five gold medals at the Barcelona Olympic Games was the most medals won by a U.S. athlete in any sport at that Games. And as far as Olympic medals go, she is the most decorated Olympic gymnast, male or female, in U.S. history. Shannon and I spoke about the mindset that she developed on her way to becoming an Olympic champion and that she later turned to and relied on while navigating life's challenges off the mat in the form of injury, early retirement, and later a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. Shannon's goal is to bring inspiration to those who are struggling as well as those who can improve their lives through a gold medal mindset. I hope that you will be inspired and enjoy listening to my conversation with Shannon Miller. Hi, Shannon. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. You were part really of Olympic legend as um, as one of the Magnificent Seven, the first U.S. gymnastics team to defeat the Russians and win the overall event. So it's it's um, something that you're familiar with to to experience that kind of pressure. Can you tell us a little bit about what you remember from your career as an Olympian and um, and just being able to withstand that kind of expectation and pressure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone... Um, has you know, differing amounts of pressures and and different ways that we handle that pressure as well. So just kind of talking about me and from my perspective, um, I always tended to put more pressure on myself <laughs> than anything else. It was this this inner drive to want to do well, but also knowing that it's not just me out there competing. Um, I'm out there competing, wearing a red, white, and blue uniform. I'm, I'm competing and representing my country and my coaches and my parents and my community. And, you know, sometimes um, when you think of it that way, it can be overwhelming. But what I really tried to do was take that and instead of creating this overwhelming pressure, think of it as all of those people also supporting me <laughs> along the way. And they were my, you know, they were also my team members. And so I tried to think about it in positive terms. But, you know, I think growing up in the sport, uh, you get used to being under pressure in in different ways, shapes and form because you're on a balance beam that's four inches wide. So there's pressure to uh, not hurt yourself or um, not fall off. And and you can't think of it in in those negative terms. You have to think about it in more of a positive way, or at least I try to. And so as I grew up, I went into my first Olympics in Barcelona. I was just 15 years old. And at the time, I think probably for me, yes, I felt pressure and um, 
again, mostly that inner pressure because I wanted to do well. I trained really hard. I wanted to, to do well, but at the same time, really not understanding the complexity and, and how many people were watching. There was no social media at the time. I mean, there really wasn't internet at the time. So, um, so for me, I wasn't getting that automatic reaction of, of people right then and there. It was um, a little bit farther out. So you could kind of um, put yourself in this bubble and think of it as, okay, it's just another competition, same four events, just you know, stay focused on that. It was a little bit easier, I think, to do. And at the time, we hadn't really won much of anything um, as a team. So to go in uh, to uh, an Olympics where our bronze medal win in 1992 was as good as gold. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. We were on the podium. I mean, that was amazing. We broke into the top four, that stronghold um, that these countries had had on, on Olympic gymnastics, um, certainly in the women's um, uh, area. So that was incredible. And then four years later to kind of use that momentum going in. And I think competing on home soil, um, having that expectation of the team gold medal, again, you can let it overwhelm or you can turn it into a positive of, wow, I get to compete on home soil. I get all of this support sitting right here in this arena with me as I move along. And I think um, my parents also helped shape that um, expectation for me along the way throughout the many, many years I was in gymnastics, because I knew at the end of the day, you know, we used to see those t-shirts, you know, sport is life, gymnastics is life. Well, it's not life, right? Gymnastics is gymnastics and life is life. And my parents were very um, clear that there was a line there where, um, yes, we want your schoolwork done first, and then, then you can go to the gym and that's great. And, and we expect you to you know, train hard and try your best, but win or lose it, it, it's going to be fine. <laughs> don't, you know, don't get too wrapped up in, in the wins and losses because you will fail, you will fall. And it matters more how you get back up and whether you get back up and keep going. So uh, that's kind of a little bit of rambling, but I'll, I'll just to kind of say, I think the pressure can be what you make of it. Um, it's never easy. And it's easier said than done to just kind of set it aside or turn it into a positive. That takes and took me years of, of trying to figure out how to handle that. Um, but when I realized, you know, I, I was in control of how much pressure I allowed to be placed on me, that was really helpful in, in kind of maintaining the right amount of pressure. That makes sense. So you, you found a way to focus on the things you could control. Yes. Um, because certainly you can't control the pressure being put on you from the outside, whether that's from the media or from other team members or coaches or um, competitors, but you learned how to control it with from within you. And that's what made the difference. I think it did. I think um, that made the difference, but not just within me, but those around me, um, my coach, the last thing he would say to me as I stepped onto the competition floor, it was never, let's go out there and win a medal, or um, you've got this, you can win, or, or you have to do that. There was nothing like that. It, the last thing he would say to me at every competition, big or small, right before I walked onto the, the floor was, you've worked hard, let's go have some fun. And Great. it would just take the pressure away. Yes, I've worked hard. And, and one thing that my mom told me, 
um, I won't tell the whole story, but basically kind of, I was having a little bit of a rough go in 1996. The team competition was fabulous. You know, gold medal had a great eight events. Um, that was wonderful. Going into the all around, I was having a great competition. Then I stepped out of bounds on floor exercise, which is to this day still just, a, just a little bit heartbreaking, but, yeah. um, you know, not that I ever think about it, but <laughs> um, but it was. And then I went into vault and I missed a vault, which um, I, I just really had never missed in training. It wasn't that difficult of a vault for me. And and I, I spoke to my mom that night and just kind of vented to her and, and talked about how, you know, I, I, here are these issues that are coming up that I never expected. And now I, I am feeling the pressure. What if I fail? What if I fall? What if I, what if I let everybody down. And she stopped me at that moment. And she just asked one question. Have you done the work? And I said, Well, of, of course. I mean, I, I always do the work. I'm, that's, that's my thing, be the hardest worker in the room. I, I, I might not be the talent, the most talented, the most um, powerful, the most flexible, but I will outwork anyone. <laughs> and, and she said, I know. And that's why I also know that you can walk into that arena head held high, confident in the fact that you have done everything you could possibly do up to that moment. Now, whatever happens after that's going to happen. But what you know is you've done the work. You've done everything you could do. And that's what you have to remember. And I think that really helps me as well, knowing that it's not the day of the competition that matters quite as much as all of the things you do leading up to the competition. Um, the hours of, of work, the extra sit-ups and the stuck routines and all of these things that you work on every single day, that momentum adds up. And so you can build your confidence and release some of that pressure by knowing that you've, you've done the work. And whether that's an Olympic routine or a presentation at work or maybe you know your midterm exams at school, whatever that is, if, if you've done the work, you don't have to be as worried. You don't have to feel as much pressure going into these big events. Yeah, there's really no substitute for preparation. And it sounds like that's where you got a lot of your confidence from. It really is. It's, it's one of those things. I, it was kind of twofold. For me, from the outside, it was uh, the, the confidence is built through the work you do each and every day. And then I also, I was very, very shy growing up and in maybe lacking in, in some confidence. I always uh, admired those athletes that would go out with such confidence. It was incredible. And at one point in my career, I was very young and I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pretend I have confidence. I'm, I'm going to hold my chin up and I'm going to have my shoulders back and I'm going to walk onto that floor. Like, like it's part of the routine that part of the choreography was, was being confident. And I think after you do that over and over and over again, you actually realize you've become confident. It's one thing to be an underdog. It's another thing to be um, to, to have the expectations of a country behind you to to win again, um, whether it's another bronze medal or even um, coming from a bronze medal to a gold, as you did in 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 96 with the team. And so what's that like, the difference between coming in without that great sense of expectation versus coming in with the additional pressure of of. Um, the success that you've had in the past? I would always prefer to be the underdog. <laughs> <laughs> Probably through most of my career, I was the ultimate underdog for one reason or another. Maybe it was coming back from an injury or maybe it was just not being the best in the field. Um, 
whatever, whatever that was, I, I feel like I always was better when I was the underdog, when I was striving for more, when I was having to kind of claw my way back. Um, being on top is very difficult. It's difficult to stay on top. You have to fight that um, feeling of rest and kind of resting on your laurels, so to speak, um, taking a break or just feeling like, okay, I've, I've, I've done enough. What, what else really is there? You can lose sight of your goals. You can um, kind of get off track. You can lose focus. And that's why I think it's so incredible. Someone like Simone Biles, who is not only great, but she is so far um, above kind of everyone in the field with, with difficulty and scores. And um, it, it's just so far ahead, more than we've ever seen, I think, in this sport, at least that I've seen that it would be so easy for her to, again, take a break or lose focus, and she doesn't. And I think that's really incredible. It is incredible. And just being able to push yourself to try things that are more difficult than anyone has done in the past is a feat unto itself. And I know that was true of your Olympic career and and your gymnastics career. You were known for not only your precision and style, but also for the level of difficulty that, that you would attempt. And the thing you love about Shannon Miller is she does not hold back from start to finish. Watch the mount. She'll do a front flip onto the beam. She really prides herself on the difficulty level that she has. Gymnasts often have great aspirations with their mind, but their bodies don't always want to participate. You know, you might... You might be thinking of acquiring a new skill, um, but there's always the, the disparity between what you'd like to do and then the, just the fear that any human being would experience when you put yourself at such great risk with some of the difficult skills. How did you manage the, the realistic fears that would, would potentially come over you? The mental aspect is enormous. You can be incredibly talented. And I watched incredibly talented athletes, so much more talented than I ever was, come through our gym. But to go from training a skill every day and and never missing a routine and workout to a competition setting, it just wasn't there. That They couldn't kind of bridge that gap. And um, so I think it's just something that's really important to remember. The mental aspect is so important. And for me... I guess the way that I handled the fear that came along with it is, you know, I think first off, when you're young, you you just have less fear. There's less thought of what's going to happen next. <laughs> you know, add a twist, add a flip. That sounds like fun. Let's go. Let's try. <laughs> so, so there is a little bit of that ignorance is bliss. Um, I do think there, I mean, I had a, a fairly long career. So then I it did have those points where I was getting to skills and, and getting older and, and realizing that you know, oh, there's a repercussion for, you know, landing wrong in this area. Um, So for me, getting over that fear was uh, making sure that I was being as safe as possible, but also understanding that at some point I needed to challenge myself. And it's a fine line because especially in a sport like gymnastics, when you are twisting and flipping and often, you know, a split second means the difference between landing on your feet or landing on your head. It's, it is, incredibly important that you take a realistic view of what's going on around you and what you're being asked to do. And so I think for me, understanding that my coaches 
uh, were there for safety and they were not going to, I felt comfortable with them knowing that they would stop me <laughs> if, if I wasn't really ready for a skill, they were going to tell me they were not going to hold back and just let me try something. Um, they, they had stopped me before. So it's kind of one of those things, Hey, we're not ready to go on the beam for this yet. Let's do some more on the floor. And it was okay. That sounds good. But it's also that opportunity to go into a fluffy foam pit onto soft crash pads, doing it multiple, multiple times. Um, I think often when people see a competition and they see these big skills, um, they don't always see the thousands of repetitions that go into uh, the foam pit, that go in with a spot, that go in with a really soft mat, um, all of the different levels that it takes to actually learn some of those difficult skills. They don't just happen overnight. Many of them are years in the making. So after you've trained it a thousand times, the fear starts to go away and you really think about the mechanics of the actual skill. Yeah. And did you have things that you would say to yourself before your floor routine, before you did your forward uh, somersault onto the beam uh, to take to mount the beam? Did you have things that you would say to yourself to narrow your attention and just focus on executing that skill? I would typically keep three corrections in my mind. And I would focus only on those three corrections, uh, sometimes only two, no more than three. And for me, that worked. It kept my mind occupied enough on exactly what I needed to be focused on without overloading it with too many things to think about. And I did the same in practice as I would do in competition. I felt like you are supposed to practice like you compete, compete like you practice, um, keep everything as similar as possible. Um, you don't want a, a lot of uh, wavering, a lot of um, a difference between competition and practice. And I think the other thing that I learned, especially on balance beam, because that's when you really need that solid focus on balance beam, I would only think of the next skill. So I wasn't thinking about the dismount when I was doing the mount. Um, I wasn't thinking about um, a really tough skill at the end of the routine when I was still on an easy skill at the beginning of the routine. That's when you get into trouble. That's when you have a wobble on, um, you know, a silly dance move instead of on a really big skill. And you see that often. In fact, mm -hmm. we would watch tape of great athletes and they would wobble on a full turn or wobble on a dance step. And, and, but then they would be solid as a rock on all of their big skills. And my coach would talk to me about, okay, well, where do you think the focus was? The focus was on the big skills, but then there was a lack of focus. You still have to be focused on on the minutiae, on the little stuff. And again, that's kind of one of those great lessons learned for life. We, we have to focus not just on the big stuff that's coming up, but on the little stuff that happens along the way, because oftentimes that's where we get off step. The focus is required all the more when you're on the biggest stage. I know you're familiar with the biggest stages, but as time went on and your level of skill increased and you went to nationals and worlds and, and the Olympics, the stage increased too. And so did it take an extra amount of effort to narrow your focus when the stage got bigger? That's a really good question. I, I guess in some ways I would say yes, because it, it does more, take more focus when you enter an Olympic games, when you walk into the arena and there are 40,000 people screaming and you've never heard anything that loud and there's flash bulbs going off and, and the audience cheering, um, you know, that does kind of draw your attention. <laughs> it has <laughs> to, um, 
but I think over the years that it took, that the 10 years it took from, from basically starting in gymnastics to um, the Olympic Games, my first Olympic Games, and then another four years to my second, you compete in so many competitions and you train yourself under so many circumstances that you build up that, that tolerance and that focus over time so that it doesn't matter what situation, no matter how big or how small you can kind of immediately draw yourself back um, and, and maintain that focus on the four events that you have to do. And that's what I would always kind of repeat to myself and remind myself is it's the same routines on the same four events. The beam didn't get any skinnier. <laughs> the floor didn't yep. change. The, the size is the same. It's just whether or not you go in and do the same routine that you've practiced a thousand times. And it's difficult to focus on that, but it's something that you're trained to do over time. Um, and we hear a lot about uh, blocking out the crowd and, and blocking out the things going on around you. And that's really important. And, and you learn to have that tunnel vision and you would see me on the sidelines. I was never watching the scoreboard. I was never, I only know where I was during certain competitions because I've, I've I now know <laughs> because I've, I've looked at video where um, I never knew during the actual competition. I didn't know that I was actually in first place after the second event of the Olympic Games. I had no idea. Um, but it's important um, for me, it was important for me to be focused even on the sidelines. So I was not, you know, kind of up cheering for everyone. My teammates knew I was there for them, but the best thing I could do for them was to get the highest score I could possibly get. And in order to do that, I had to stay focused. So you would see me on the sidelines, not watching others, not watching the leaderboard, but just doing, going through my routines on the sidelines. And I would basically do that the entire competition and focus. But the other part of that is to be able to draw the audience in when you need it. Um, for example, for me, the last tumbling pass on my floor exercise routine, <laughs> it was always tough. I mean, you get to that last pass and it was not a walk in the park for me. It was mm -hmm. all I could do on my jello legs and breathing hard, asking for air, um, just to get enough oomph to get that, that, um, that tumbling pass around. And so at the end of the routine, I always, a let kind of, it was almost like opening your ears. It's, it was allowing the audience in and it didn't matter, frankly, who they were cheering for. They could have been cheering for someone who just landed a great beam routine, <laughs> but I would envision that those cheers for me, and it would give me that extra push, that extra energy that I needed in order to get through that last tumbling pass. So being able to also turn it on and turn it off, I think is incredibly important as an athlete. Well, I'm really hearing that you owned your own mental process and and didn't change that, even if it was different from from one of your teammates' way of approaching the the sport mentally, because you didn't feel the pressure, um, or at least it didn't overwhelm you to to get up and cheer for your team. You you really were able to kind of narrow your attention and then then keep it focused where you wanted it to be. And we do have the power to put our minds where we want it to be, and and to be able to tell ourselves things that kind of help us interpret situations that we're in. Um, and it sounds like you really developed those skills over time. It, it became such an asset for me in gymnastics, that mental strength that often between my work ethic and the mental aspect, those were kind of able to overpower maybe some of the, the areas that I was lacking in, that, that I wasn't as great at 
while I worked on those and while those kind of got a little bit more up to speed, but I was able to kind of get through with some of those other assets that I had. Mm-hmm. Well, you overcame your your fear of public speaking because you you <laughs> now have a career where you do a lot of it. So I imagine it's the same determination that you applied applied to that. <laughs> it is. You know, it was funny. I um I I lost some of that confidence I gained through sport when I retired after the nineteen ninety six Olympics, and um, I remember one day just realizing how inward I had become, and I'm an introvert by nature, and so. For me, it was a challenge. It really was, okay, this is my goal. I am going to be less shy. I'm going to start talking to people and I'm just going to stop being scared of that. And I really turned to sport. I really went back to some of those lessons learned through gymnastics in order to challenge myself. And I started, I'd always turned down every speaking engagement, um, even charity golf tournaments. I, the idea mm-hmm. of sitting for four hours with, with strangers and making small talk, I mean, it was just terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. And so I started saying yes to these things. And what I found was I just really enjoyed asking questions. I enjoyed learning about people. I enjoyed talking with people. And I, I'm always, um, I, I love learning. And so for me, instead of learning through books, which is what I'd always done, I was learning through meeting people. And I found that I really loved that. And when I turned to um, commentary and analysis and talking about gymnastics, talking about something I loved and now having the opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, what I consider the gold medal mindset um, that will hopefully help people talking about cancer awareness. Those are things that I am so passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're talking about something you're passionate about, it's different than when you're just talking about yourself. And so I kind of made that mental switch and, um, and really haven't turned back. I mean, I just, I really enjoy everything that I get to do now. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. I know that it must've been a challenge for you when you were at the ripe age of 19 to think about retiring from sport. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it really was all you had known because you began your career in just in gymnastics when you were five years old. That's right. I did. Um, so it, it was for the most part, the only sport I knew, um, but probably not the only thing I knew. My parents, as I said, they were very focused on education. Um, my dad is a physics professor. Um, my mother, she worked full time too. And so they both kind of went through with, with the three of us, my sister, my brother, myself, um, this understanding that education comes first. Yes, you're going to do these sports. And yes, Shannon, that, that's great. You're training for the Olympics. Awesome. But anything can happen, you know, whether it's an injury, whether you just don't want to do it anymore or the end of a career at some point, you're going to retire. You know, whether whether it's 16, 19, 40, whenever that is, you're going to retire. And what are you going to do next? And they really did. Um, it wasn't forced. It was a very natural conversation, but it was always a, a conversation about, you know, making sure that you have something else to look forward to, some other goals outside of just gymnastics. And so working through your last few years of your career in sport, had you already started to look forward and, and um, just flag some things that held your interest? I don't know that if that I had anything specific in mind, but I knew I was going to continue with school. So I had started taking, um, I had enrolled in college and was taking um, college classes prior to the 1996 Olympics. I was just going okay. part time. And so I, I went part time to school there and then, um, you know, started going a little bit more regularly um, after I was hired. 
But um, for me, it was maintaining that balance that was so important. Um, I was not one of those kids that could be all or nothing, um, you know, only focused on gymnastics. I had to have a balance. And so for me, if I was at the gym and, and maybe I had a big competition coming up or a big skill, I was a little bit nervous to learn or whatever that was. When I was at school, I didn't have to think about it. I just got to be with friends. I got to read. I got to focus on a math test, all of those things. I just didn't even have to think about it. And same thing with school. When I had a big um, exam coming up or a big paper due, I walked into the gym and you left it at the door and you just didn't think about it for the next five hours. Mm -hmm. So it was a big balance for me. Well, it doesn't sound like you struggled with underlying anxiety um, or, or things that would have just preoccupied you with worry. It seems like you were really able to manage and compartmentalize things. I'm, I'm probably, um, I probably compartmentalize things to a fault. <laughs> it's, it's really easy in gymnastics. And when you're you know, young and you're doing gym in school and people ask me about, oh, how hard was it to balance those? Well, it's really easy to balance gym and school. It's when you get into life <laughs> and <laughs> balance and you can't always, and it's maybe not always a good thing for me to compartmentalize as much as I do as comes natural to me in everyday life. So I, I do have to kind of work on making sure I don't do that too much in real life. But, um, but for me, it's, I, I try to think of it as a strength. It's just something that comes natural to me. Not to say that I wasn't ever worried or concerned or anything like that. I just, I think I had um, enough going on that again, I could just kind of switch gears and kind of relieve, relieve the stress in certain areas by doing other things and then kind of come back to it. That makes a lot of sense, but it, but it still speaks, I think, to your, your, the quality that you had in, in your focus. You've certainly overcome a number of things in your life and in your career, beginning maybe with the injuries that you had to overcome before both of your Olympic appearances, before your 92 games and before your 96 games, you had injuries that um, could have really affected what happened at the Olympic games, but yet you were able to, to overcome those. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed to overcome those injuries? <laughs> yes. I always have the best timing with big injuries. <laughs> um, I, yeah. So 1992, I ended up breaking and dislocating my left elbow about 10 weeks before Olympic trials that year. So talk about wow. a moment in time. Um, and I come back to that moment often because I really feel like it was a blessing in disguise. And I know that's easy to say now in hindsight, but it, it really ended up being that. Um, it forced me not only to realize how much I really wanted to be on that team, not that I, not that I lacked that want, but, but it really did make me dig deep and, and say, okay, I mean, now you're dealing with, you're going to wear a splint for, for this long. You've got a screw in your elbow to hold the bones together. And, you know, for a while I couldn't even straighten my arm. So how bad do I want this? So that was part of it. And I think the other part was, um, going in the gym and knowing that I needed to be in the gym mentally. I couldn't do that much. Um, again, I had the splint on and I wasn't allowed to do anything, put any weight on my arm until it was completely straight. So what could I do? I could stretch and I could condition. <laughs> and that was about all I could do. But then I would think about my weaknesses. 
you know, when I, when I would think about, okay, what are the areas I could really use the help on? It wasn't routines. I had been doing routines. My routines were fine. It was the flexibility. It was the strength where I wasn't always the strongest or the most flexible. So after working on that and being forced to focus on it, I think I went into the 1992 Olympic trials as well as the Olympics, a stronger, um, more flexible, more well-rounded gymnast than I had ever been because I was forced to focus on those things. And um, for me, I think with that injury and I think with the, the other injury, which I'll talk about in a second, um, it was all about forward motion. And I think that's another thing that sometimes I do to a fault. <laughs> and, I, and I can share that aspect as well. But I think the forward motion for me is so important. Not getting too weighed down by things that you can't control, things that already happened, that have already happened. Mm-hmm. And I learned that lesson really early on. I was at my first state competition and uh, I went up on balance beam and I was so excited. I got to compete at the state competition. I was <laughs> nine years old. This was the greatest thing ever. And I went up on balance beam and I fell on my first event. Backhand spring layout, step out. I'll never forget. <laughs> and it was that crushing moment of all is lost. I can't believe I fell on my first event. I mean, that's it. And my coach stepped in and he reminded me and he, you know, kind of been working on this a little bit, but he reminded me, hey, th- yeah, there's nothing you can do about it now. Get back on the beam and you keep going and you try to minimize the deductions and you never know what's going to happen. So you just keep pushing, keep giving it 100% no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I ended up winning states that year <laughs> um, with a fall. And I come back to that often, um, not just b- because I won, but because I had failed. And I think that was um, something that helped me remember, okay, stuff's going to happen. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. It's what you do afterwards that matter. Can you take that next step forward? And so I, I brought that into 1992. And 1996 was um, also challenging. I had a, a wrist injury uh, that was just a, a, a nagging injury. I, I, I'm not sure how much I, I really should have been doing on it. But, um, but it was one of those moments where you just kind of figured, if, if I don't, if I'm not going to do any more damage to it, then let's just go and, and just do the very best that I can. Um, but for me, that's, you know, part of that's blocking out the pain. Part of that's understanding where the pain's coming from, which I think is really important. Understanding um, when you need to hold back and when you need to move forward. And we did uh, take out a competition that year, actually both years, <laughs> um, I did in 1992 and 1996, I sat at one of the trial competitions, but that was important in order to be able to compete. So there's a lot of, there's strategy that goes into it, but there's that mental aspect of just being able to take that next forward step. Well, you are a very competitive person. And I think the strategizing that you did and and continue to do in your life, I'm sure assists you in being able to to manage all of those competitive situations. I think it's important. Um, And again, that was another lesson learn through sport is there has to be a strategy and we all want to go out and we want to compete in every competition and we want to, you know, um, get a 10 on every event and every meet. And I see this with young athletes these days, Um, you know, they get bummed out when they don't win, you know, every soccer tournament or every gymnastics meet and, and they don't score the highest, but it's just part of the process. If you're winning at everything, just like I tell my kids, if, if you're always getting a hundred on everything that you do, you're not challenging yourself. You need 
to be able to challenge yourself and be okay with that. You have to be okay with making mistakes. And, and not, and I don't mean that in mistakes are great, fall off the beam all the time. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Um, I just mean, you know, you go out and you challenge yourself and it's not always going to work out great. Yes, you're going to fall, but you did it. And I bet you the next time you're not going to fall on that skill. You might fall on something else, but you're not going to fall on that one because you will have learned something. And mm -hmm. I think we have to allow ourselves, and especially in this day and age, we have to allow ourselves those mistakes and those challenges along the way, because that's how we learn the most. I think a person's attitude about mistakes not only says a lot about themselves as an athlete, but also says a lot about how well they might do in their sport, because mistakes can't be seen as as failures that you then fear the next time you step out. They have to be things that you learn from and see as part of your overall growth as an athlete. Absolutely. And that is the mentality that, that you have to have in, in every situation in order to keep going and, and even attempt success. You're not always going to succeed, but you're definitely not going to succeed if you don't get back up. Now, what about the athletes who might not have that kind of mentality where, where anything goes? I mean, of course, we know about the athletes who do, because we hear about that mindset a little bit more, people might recall what happened with Carrie Strug on, on her um, vault with her with her ankle, ankle in the 96 games. And people might recall just the pressure that was on you to perform because of your wrist injury before the 96 games. And we think about um, athletes like Tiger Woods competing on a bum, a bum knee. And we think about Kobe Bryant and his ability to, to come back and win when he had torn cartilage and ligaments in his leg. We hear about those those stories, but we don't hear a lot about the athletes who don't have that kind of killer instinct and they might struggle a little bit more with fear or with worry. What is it that you might say to to athletes who who just don't have that innate killer instinct? I would say that they don't have it yet. <laughs> no, it's not something that you just have or you don't have. It's something that is honed. It is learned. And, and probably there are athletes that are, it probably comes a little bit easier to them, but you still have to work on it. It's not like any of those athletes that you just named never have fear, never have worry, never feel pressure. They all do. We all have those moments. Again, it's just what you do with that. We talk about um, having inspiration in the sport um, and in the sports world. Those that go before you inspire you to do even greater. And that's why it's important to watch them. But watch when people don't succeed. Watch what happens when they fail. And then watch them get back up. Those are the stories you want to pay attention to. If you really want to learn how to do that, pay attention to those stories, not just the gold medal win, but what happened along the way? How many times did they fall? How many times did they fail? How many times did they make a mistake or want to give up? How many times did they give up Yeah. before they finally got going again? Look at the entire story, not just the finish line. That's great advice. I think it's so important for athletes to consider the whole context, not only of their own careers, but of sport in general. Because as, as you mentioned, the title of your book, it's not about perfect um, and you, you write about that in your memoir, that, that it isn't about perfect, it's, as you wrote, competing for my country and fighting for my life. Um, but a lot of times we get the impression that if you're not perfect at your sport, 
then perhaps you have no business attempting to compete at the highest level. Which is crazy. Of yeah. course. <laughs> I mean, you have to start somewhere. You are never going to be perfect day one. There's not an athlete out there that was perfect day one. And none of them, frankly, are perfect now. Mm-hmm. Um, Tiger Woods loses sometimes. It, you know, Serena loses sometimes. <laughs> not very often, but, <laughs> but you, you have your off days and you have those days where you might not be off at all. You just might be working on something. I mean, I think about gymnastics and I think about, you know, sometimes um, coaches want to hold the athletes back in a certain level so that they can do really well at that level. And, and there's something to be said for that if, if you want to work on boosting confidence and whatnot. So, so there's a time and a place for that. But there's also a time and a place for throwing them into a challenging group, having them go up and and try some of those more difficult skills. And yeah, they're going to fall. But if you never try it, if you never get out of the the gym and actually do it in competition, you're never really going to know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this idea that you have to be perfect at every competition is crazy. You're never going to get any better. If you're always wanting to be perfect because you're going to keep your skill level low or you're going to get disappointed and lose that confidence, you have to continue challenging yourself. And that's, again, what comes back to sometimes you just have to be okay with losing, with making the mistakes and with failing, not because you like it, not because you want to lose or make mistakes, but you know that there is a path. Um, There is a strategy. Yes. You're going to have a few competitions that you make mistakes on so that you don't make it at the Olympic Games in the gold medal round. Well, certainly a lot of lessons I can hear were, were taught to you from your parents. Um, and you mentioned inspiration in your life. And, and you've become an inspiration to, to others, not just because of your career in sport, but because of other things that you've had to deal with in life that have led you to some current areas of, of passion and, and ways that you want to try to make a difference. Today just happens to be World Cancer Day, and many people are probably familiar with the fact that you've overcome cancer in your own life, a very rare form of ovarian cancer. And that, of course, must have been um, not only an amazing shock to have to to deal with and to manage, but it really must have been the greatest challenge of your life. Frankly, it doesn't matter who you are, um, where you're from, how many gold medals you have. (laughs) Cancer doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Diabetes doesn't care. Heart disease doesn't care. They, those things are, are life. Those are the things that I can really kind of dig into and feel so good about going out there and talking to people um, and, and sharing experiences because a lot of us are kind of in the same boat. We all know someone who um, has been or is going through a cancer diagnosis. If we don't know someone, we probably will at some point. And so being able to share those experiences and and talk about it and also get the word out about signs and symptoms and um, the importance of early detection and raising money for research and, you know, all all of those good things um, is is something I'm very passionate about. And I I kind of came to it a a fairly hard way (laughs) to get there. But again, I, I try to look at that silver lining. I try to look at that, that bright spot and that blessing of um, being where I am today and having the ability to use this platform that I gained through gymnastics, through, through just basically going out and doing a sport I love <laughs> and having that platform now to 
hopefully uh, bring awareness to, to such a difficult disease. Well, you do an amazing job helping to raise awareness and you also raise awareness about childhood obesity, as well as being a, an advocate for safety in, in sports, especially, of course, after the um, really unconscionable things that we heard happened to so many young female gymnasts um, that we've heard about in the news of those who've suffered in silence um, under some very just really horrible conditions when they were sexually abused um, by someone that they trusted. You've been an advocate for safety in sport as well, which of course, and anyone would would share your your passion for that. But you've used your platform to raise awareness to a number of really important issues, and I, I imagine that that brings some satisfaction and fulfillment to be able to make that kind of a difference. There are things that I really do want to utilize my platform to get the word out, to get others inspired, to get others excited about um, the positive things that we can do. That's wonderful. And I think another way that you give back through your experience too is is just in the way you you speak to young people, um, as well as really anyone who gets the chance to hear you speak or or reads your book about how your mentality really translated to to help you in other areas of of life, your your sport mentality. And you talk about a few specific sports psychology skills that helped you in your process of recovery from cancer. One was the idea of teamwork, another being the idea of setting goals. And then another was um, the idea that you can really be yourself. You don't have to be positive all the time. And I wanted to just kind of visit those quickly before before we close out our, our conversation. But if, if you could speak just to how some of your sports psychology skills have helped you outside of sport, that would be fantastic. Some of those that I learned through sport um, that I carried over to my cancer journey um, and, and really to business and motherhood and everything right. else. Um, but the idea of goal setting, I always think, think goal setting is the foundation. You have to have a direction. You have to have a path. You have to know something that you want to do. Big, small, doesn't matter, but you've got to have a goal. And you might have multiple goals. You should have multiple goals in different areas of your life. But have that long-term goal. Work on those short-term goals. What is it I can get up and do today to get closer to that long-term goal? Because it it doesn't always matter what the end game is. It's all about what you do today that matters the most. And um, so I think that's really important. But I think the one thing we often leave out is that idea of follow through. We all know how to set goals. We all know um, that you're supposed to set short-term goals and you're supposed to set smart goals. But I think we forget about the follow through and the fact that you have to actually do the, it's not enough to know what you need to do. You've got to do what you need to do. Don't just put it on your smartphone or on your calendar or write it down. Chip away at it. A little bit every single day matters. Um, you mentioned teamwork. And um, I think for me, uh, during my chemotherapy treatments, that's when it really came full force back to this idea of teamwork. Very different team. A lot more medical staff on that team. But this idea that I was not alone. I wasn't doing this alone. I wasn't in it alone. But not only did I have all of these great people surrounding me, medical friends, family, neighbors, but I was also a part of that team. And as a team member, you've got to contribute. You've got to hold up your end. And, and I think that helped me take that next forward step when, especially during that first week of chemotherapy, when I was back in the hospital and I, I couldn't keep down food or water and 
I just wasn't even sure if I could do this. How do you, how do you do this? I just, I, I just wasn't sure. And it was that understanding that I wasn't in this alone, but I also, I, I had to get up. <laughs> I had to get up. I had to figure out a way, whether it was asking for help or, um, or just getting to the next step, whatever it was, but I had to be a part of that team. And then the last one you mentioned, um, what was the last one you mentioned? Just that you didn't have to feel positive all the time. You could, you could be yourself. That's, oh, yes. And I'm glad you mentioned that one because that's a really big one because I, I think I'm a pretty positive person. Um, and, and I don't want people, I, I want, want to make sure that, um, especially when I'm talking about something as heavy as, as a cancer diagnosis or other health issues, it's important for people to know that this is not, when I talk about a positive mindset, it's not just happy, cheery, put a smile on your face to hide the pain. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about a positive attitude, it's, it's trying to find those small positive items. You know, it, it may be hard to find them and there's some days it's not going to happen and that's okay. But I feel like for the most part, we have the opportunity each day to wake up and find something, something good around us. And during my cancer journey, you know, getting up and I, there were days that if I could get up and get dressed, that was, that was a good, a good day. That, that was my win. That was my positive. And, and just the idea that I got to get up and I got to see my son. It's mm. <laughs> a really good day. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to allow yourself that pity party time. You know, you have to have that sometimes. <laughs> Just have the pity party. But then when you're done, be finished with it for that moment and take that next forward step. Um, so I think that's an important part to remember, especially because when I do talk, I, I do talk about a positive mindset. But I do believe that being positive is a choice. Um, there are very few things in life we actually get to control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a mother now, more than anything, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot out of our control. But our attitude is something that we get to own and we get complete control over. And again, it's it's not going to be great every day, but if if it can be good most of the days, then that's that's a great start. Well, certainly you've learned a lot about how to manage attitude over all the things that have happened in your life. But I know that it's very difficult for athletes who are injured or facing the prospect of retirement or just have have setbacks off of the court, off of the field, off of the mat to navigate how to change their mindset in order to manage those things. And you've highlighted a number of things that are just important and just little strategies, as we've talked about, in order to do that. Because when you're an accomplished person or you're someone who has lived their life setting goals, um, it can feel like you have no goals left to accomplish when you're sidelined for some reason. And yet, if you use your goal setting ability to to refocus on things you can accomplish and find little goals that can, can feel motivating and move you forward every day, uh, you're really winning the battle. Absolutely. I, at least that's what's worked for me. And, and again, I think everyone's different. Um, but I think if you can continue that forward motion in some way, shape or form, that doesn't mean, you know, you're going to retire, it's going to be easy, you're going to find your next thing, and, and you're going to have that new goal. That's not typically how it works. In fact, 
retiring from sports, whether it's a collegiate career, a professional career, an Olympic career, um, whether it's a young age or an older age, um, it is an incredibly difficult process for many. And it can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. It can lead to kind of a paralysis of, of what do I do next? Mm-hmm. You've lost kind of your family overnight, your, your team. Um, you don't have the structure that you had before. You don't have to be anywhere 40 hours a week. <laughs> so what do I do with that time when I've never had that kind of just open time before? So there's a lot of things that go into that. But if you can fill some of that void and fill some of that space, uh, one, with team. So that might be mentors, it, whether it's in business, in, in school, in sport, but whatever that is, find some mentors. It doesn't even have to be in your area of expertise. In fact, it's good to have mentors that aren't because they help you think outside the box mm-hmm. and look for other avenues that you might enjoy or be good at. Um, so surrounding yourself with, with a team that you can check in with, that they can check in with you and, and kind of help you along that path. And the second is trying to find those goals. They don't have to be as lofty as an Olympic Games. It can just be whatever that next step is. Okay, I'm going to enroll for A class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to enroll for a call. Just mm-hmm. I'm going to enroll in A class somewhere, or I'm going to go speak at an event, or I'm going to go do something. But whatever that is, having something actionable, having some goal, some reason to, to get up and do something each day. And it sounds simple. But it can be difficult when you're going through that time and that void of what do I do now? Who am I without my sport? I've never done this. I don't know anyone in this kind of area. I am now outside my, my sport specific area. What am I supposed to do? So I think it's, it's really important to kind of go back to, to some of those lessons, but reshape them in a way that, that fits kind of where you're headed now, even if you don't know exactly where that is, you've got to do something, find out what you don't like to do. I always tell people, you may not not know what you like to do, find out what you don't like to do, go try stuff. And and then you can just mark it off. And and through, you might find out something you do like. I'm just beginning the pen's in my hand, ending on Well, you've been uh, really gracious to share a lot of your great advice with us today. I wanted to just close, if I may, by asking you some questions that I ask everyone that I speak with. Okay. <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no reason to be. Um, so Shannon, what in life are you still curious about? Everything. I hope no one ever sees what I search on like, Google because I about everything, but, um, you know, but me, I, I just, I love learning. I I've always loved learning. I, you know, and, and now to also learn through my kids' eyes, it's, it's just incredible. But yes, I, I'll Google anything and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious about everything. Well, that's a wonderful answer. And again, another great skill to have is, is to just have a love for learning. Um, so what is more distracting to you throughout your career as, as an athlete, but also as a commentator and as a public speaker? Is it the praise that you have received or is it the criticism? Which is more distracting? Yeah, uh, you know, that, that might throw you off your game a little, cause you to think too much, um, you know, get in your head, start to doubt. Um, you know, my parents taught me early on, um, and now granted, again, this was before, <laughs> this was before social media mm-hmm. and the internet. Um, so it was basically, you know, 
newspapers and and three channels on television. But hmm. but they said, don't read your media. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to ever read your media. And what they meant by that was it really doesn't matter if someone says something good about you. Well, that's nice. But if they say something bad about you, neither one of those things affects what you need to go out and do each day. None of those affects how hard you try on the balance beam, right? It doesn't affect that you're going to go out and give 100%. So just go out and give 100% and, and don't worry about what people say. And, and I mean, I've been very fortunate. People have been, I've, I have the best fans ever. So, <laughs> but, um, but I think that's important. And I think um, in this day and age, when you do have um, young athletes that have um, such big social media followings, um, it, it can become a significant distraction and it really can, um, doesn't matter if you're an athlete or not, it can really play with your mentality and how you feel about yourself. And so being able to, um, one of the things, uh, one of the, the groups that I had spoken with, um, with regard to, you know, bullying and, and some other things that, um, that was working on years ago, they said, you know, if, if we tell kids that if they're looking at, um, and this should go for adults as well, you know, if they're looking at, um, social media and they're starting to feel bad about themselves, then, start deleting (laughs) because you don't need to compare yourself to others and you don't need to worry about kind of some of this outside stuff as much as just going out and doing the best you can each day, just kind of going out and being your very best each day. Mm -hmm. It it is such a different world than it was even in 1996 with the, with the popularity of social media in our daily lives. And I think we might, feel immune to the impact of it. Um, but I, I don't think any of us really are immune to the impact of it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you address that with young athletes because it's such a challenge these days. It is. And I mean, of course, you, you feel good when someone says something good about you. I mean, that's just natural. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, if, if there's criticism, I, I like um, healthy criticism. I, I mean, I am a, an athlete. I mean, I've had coaches. <laughs> so I, I want that criticism that helps me learn and helps me do better. Um, you know, in gymnastics, if my coach were to say that's a great routine every time and it wasn't a great routine, that doesn't help me. What helps me is, okay, that skill, we had a problem. You, you've fallen on it four times, you know, stop leaning your right shoulder. I want you to fall off the other side of the beam next time, you know, which is, I mean, I guess it's criticism, but it's not personal. It's how can I, get better. And I, that's the criticism I like. And I, I really do make a point to tell people because I think sometimes when, um, you're uh, <laughs> maybe an athlete or an Olympian, people don't want to give you bad news. People don't want to critique you, but I want to be surrounded by those that, that will help me get better. Again, I think that's wisdom from your years of experience, but the fact that you're open to that kind of criticism is probably part of what made you such a success because we, we have to be, we have to be willing to learn and, to, and take a look at things that need improvement. And if we are closed off the criticism, then I think it, it actually hinders us in the long run. Well, and I feel like we're, I mean, we're, we're all a work in progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, can, we can all use a little help now. You know, granted there's, there's sometimes I, I'm more welcoming than others, but <laughs> But it is important to your point. I think to be open to um, constructive criticism is is overall probably a good thing because it can help you learn and do or try something new or or again, learn what doesn't work. 
Well, on that note, what what is one comment or piece of feedback that you received that still stands out to you because of its impact? Um, oh, goodness. Wish I had some time to think about this. <laughs> Good ones. Um, some feedback. That's, I mean, there's so much. Um, I mean, there's, there's the little things every day in the gym, but those would be more meaningful to the gymnasts out there. <laughs> um, I think overall... I, you know, I think still my, my mom talking to me right before my Olympic beam routine mm-hmm. um, in 96. I mean, I still think her, her asking me, have you done the work? That, yeah. that comes back. I mean, I would say every day I think about that um, in different scenarios. Uh, when I'm walking into a, a presentation for work and I might be a little nervous or I'm um, going into, um, you know, a speech. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I, always, I always get nervous because that's just me. And I've, I've kind of learned how to handle the nerves, but I always feel like nerves are telling us that we care about how we do. Mm. Um, look at it as a good thing, but it's not always a great feeling. So when I get nervous, I think about that. Have I done the work? And I think about that when I want to procrastinate mm-hmm. and I know I have something coming up that may be months down the road. And I think about that. At some point, I'm going to have to ask myself, have I done the work? And I need to have the right answer. So I think that's a really big one for me. Okay. And you've mentioned this already a little bit, but I wanted to go ahead and still ask the question in case you'd like to respond to it a little bit, um, a little bit more in depth. But how do you move on from failure? It's not easy. It's never easy to fail. Nobody wants to fail. Never. No one wants to feel that. Um, it it hurts. It hurts your heart. <laughs> it's it's hard. And I think it's easier for me now to look back because I've I've failed so many times, and now I've seen how many of those failures have not only shaped who I am today, but helped me get to the Olympic Games, become a gold medalist, um, do some of those things that I may have never even thought were possible, but they were possible because of those failures early on. Um, But I think it's important to remember that failure is part of the process. Mm. And that is such a difficult lesson to learn when you're just starting out whether it's in a sport or you're young, I see it in my kids, they don't want to fail. They want to get it right all the time mm-hmm. and trying to, to get them to understand that failure is part of the process is difficult. And I know it was for my coach. I mean, I would burst into tears. I was just, I mean, people saw it on TV. I would just mm-hmm. burst into tears every time I messed up and even in the gym. And he took me aside and, and many, many times because it didn't just take one time. He had to stay on it um, for years before I kind of before it kind of got through. But he would tell me, look, you've already messed up. <laughs> you've already fallen. So you can cry about it and feel bad about it. But that's not going to change what happened. Mm. What's going to change is what you do now. So you can stand over here and cry or you can get back up and try again. And then you try again after that, and then you try again after that, and you get better. And it did. It took time for that to get through. But when, when it clicked, it really clicked. And, and then it doesn't hurt quite so bad. Mm. <laughs> it hurts. You don't want to fail. But, but when you realize that you have to, there's oftentimes you just have to fail in order to get to that next step. Mm-hmm. That's true, I'm sure, in gymnastics. Um perhaps more than a number of other sports, because when you, when you learn a new skill at a new level, there's, there's no doing it right the first time. 
So you you really have to be open to that idea of of failure as as just part of the learning process. You do, and I think it's probably easier, like you said, easier to see in gymnastics because you you're just never going to go out and do a skill perfect the first time. There's a learning process, and and that involves failure. And there are other sports where there's failures maybe not as big in the learning process, but it's maybe in the the tournaments or the games and losing with your team. Um, losing is also helping you find your way. You don't want to lose. I mean, if you're okay with, if you're just completely okay with losing, then it doesn't mean enough and you probably shouldn't mm. be doing that. <laughs> so that, that's different than when I, when I kind of talked about being okay with losing before. And I kind of explained that that's, that's knowing that you've got to get up and keep going and it's part of the process, but um, you should never want to lose. But when you do, when it happens, know that it is going to happen. And what are you going to do with it? Is it going to fuel the fire to go back and work harder and do better? Or are you going to let it overcome you and, and not allow you to move forward? So when you fail, when you lose, you get to make that decision. That's a great distinction. Um, just a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Um, the, the second to the last one would be, have you ever had what, we, what you would say was a transformative moment in your career? And if so, what was it? There's probably been a couple. I would say um, there's a few. Um, I talked about one with my, my fall at, at my state competition, and I know it doesn't sound like much, but for me, that made a huge impact on me, this idea that I fell, but I could still succeed. And, and I, I had to do that by getting back up and, and taking that next step and, and keep going and put it behind you. And you can cry about it later, but, but right now, what do you need to focus on? So that was a big one. I think another one for me was in 1993. I had um, come off the 1992 Olympics, won five medals. It was fantastic. Went the next year into world championships, won the world championships, um, came home from that competition. And I had been working the same routines for two years. My, I had shin splints. I'd actually had a growth spurt, which <laughs> it probably doesn't seem like much, but well, you know, for a gymnast, a growth spurt, it, it knocks you off Absolutely. of and, um, my back was really hurting. Um, I didn't have an injury. It was just kind of the growth spurt. And um, I came home one day and just said, I'm, I'm told my parents I'm finished. I'm, I'm done. I don't want to be a gymnast anymore. And that's that. And they said, okay, well, um, and they were always of the mind that uh, it was, I was driving the bus <laughs> and they were happy to support me in every way that they, every way they could. But if I don't want to do it, then we're going to look at why you don't want to do it. You don't get to just give up, but you don't have to stay in a sport if you're not enjoying it. Mm. And so they said, well, let's hear you out. But I also, I think it's appropriate to bring your coaches in and, and just talk and just make sure everyone's on the same page. And, and so my coaches both came over, we were sitting around the dining room table and, and uh, my coach, Steve, he, he looked over and he said, okay, so why do you want to quit? I said, well, my back hurts and my shins hurt and I just really don't want to do it anymore. And he looked at me again and he said, okay, but why do you want to quit? <laughs> and I'm thinking, why aren't you listening to me? <laughs> and he said, well, I know you've got shin splints. I know your back hurts, but these are not, um, you know, horrible injuries. These are things that you just need to rest. And 
and they'll be fine. So what's the real reason? Mm. What, what's going on? And I really didn't have an answer for him. It try as I might. <laughs> I was trying to think of, <laughs> but I didn't really have a good answer. And so he came back with a proposition. He said, well, all right, how about this? For the next, I can't remember if it was two or three weeks, but the next three weeks, come in the gym, but you come in for two hours only. And we're only going to do things that don't hurt your body. <laughs> and, and that's it. And I'm thinking, you know, I train six, seven hours a day. Two hours is nothing. I barely get through conditioning in that amount of time. I mean, I could do that standing on my head. That's <laughs> okay. If, if that will be what quiets them down and I can be done with this, great. I'll do it. So I said, sure. So the first week, uh, I went in and couldn't do much, did a little uneven bars, and that was about it. And by the end of the week, I had learned a new skill. Mm. I wasn't having to train routines every day, yeah. and I wasn't doing the other events that hurt. And by the next week, uh, by the end of the next week, I had learned a second new skill on uneven bars. It was starting to get, you know, not enjoyable, but like a little bit more. My shins were starting to feel better. My back was feeling a little bit better. And then the third week came and I remember him dropping some, some lines um, like, oh yes. And I heard that um, uh, Dominique Dawes has signed on to do this on uh, next, the next big international competition that's coming up. Mm -hmm. So that'll be awesome because you can, you can cheer for her while you're sitting in your living room. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, and now I, of course I know he was throwing that out there to see, yeah. and, you know, if he said, yeah, that sounds good. I'll get some popcorn. Then I probably don't need to be in the gym. Uh -huh. I certainly had the other reaction of, wait a second, <laughs> I don't want to be sitting on the couch. No. And, uh, and after that, I went back to regular training and, and, and never thought about it again. But, mm -hmm. but what we realized through that time, um, he and I together realized I just, I lost sight of goals. I had gone to the Olympic Games. I had won the world championships. What was left? I, I didn't know what was left for a gymnast. And so I hadn't been thinking ahead. And we had always created a plan. I always had goals. And I just was lacking that. And so we started creating new goals for other competitions and then eventually for the Olympic Games in 1996. Um, but, you know, he was smart enough to know that I just needed some time, some space, and to kind of come back to it on my own. Steve is a smart coach. He's also was a very positive coach. I know not every gymnast has been so fortunate to be under the tutelage of a really positive coach, but he was mic'd up for a few of your events that you can still find on YouTube and um, you get a, a good sense of, of just the level of support he, he offered you. Yeah, I was very fortunate to find coaches, both he and, and my balance beam coach, Peggy, who were, um, you know, in, in Oklahoma, where where I grew up and trained and, um, and went to school and lived with my family. So it was it was that great balance of kind of being able to have the best of, of every world. That's fantastic. Well, lastly, Shannon, um, let me just ask you, what have you learned about yourself from all of the events of your life and career? I've learned a lot, um, you know, some good, some, some not so good. I think, you know, I've learned that I can compartmentalize extremely well. And sometimes I, I can do that to my detriment. Um, I think above all, um, coming from my background, being shy, maybe not always being the most confident, I, I think overall and going through the cancer experience, I've learned that. I'm stronger 
than I've probably given myself credit for. And I know that sounds silly being an Olympic gold medalist, but that's kind of the outward. That's kind of what happened. That was the goal. That wasn't necessarily how I was feeling inside. You know, for me there, um, it, it wasn't always that certainty and that confidence. And so for me to kind of be at a place in my life where I can look back and think, you know, I, I am, I am stronger than maybe I, I ever imagined I could be. And I think often that's something that does come out of, um, probably less of a, a, a gymnastics experience and more from a, a, a cancer experience of, of realizing that, um, you know, sometimes you, you just rise to the occasion when, when the occasion's brought to you and you don't have a choice. Well, Shanna, thank you so much for all of the insights that you've shared, including that, that final one. Um, you have had a remarkable career thus far, and I know that it's, it's still in its prime with all of the many activities that you're involved in and the, the tremendous ways that you're making an impact from the pleasure that you brought when we watched you compete to the difference that you're making in the lives of, of those who need inspiration in their own struggles and suffering. So I wanted to thank you not only for that, but also just for the time that you were so generous with today in, in joining me for this conversation. So thank you so much, Shannon. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been Manage the Moment with Dr. Shep. Life is a collection of moments. It's how you manage the moments that makes the difference. My thanks again to Shannon Miller for joining me on today's episode. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about Shannon's incredible career and contributions on her website, shannonmiller.com. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of her books, you can do that as well at shannonmiller.com shop. A special thanks to those of you who have taken the time to rate or review this podcast. I really appreciate it, and your small effort really does make a difference to help this podcast. So thanks. You can subscribe to the Manage the Moment podcast for free just by clicking the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. And then you'll be sure to get the newest episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And for more information about the Manage the Moment podcast, you can see the episode notes for this broadcast. And you'll also find us on social media, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Shep. Thanks so much for listening and taking the time to share these moments with us. Until next time.